Welcome to the podcast of Seven Rivers Presbyterian Church in Lakanto, Florida. Our passion is to be a church that enjoys God, experiences His grace, and reflects His love to our community and beyond. To join our local body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at sevenrivers.org. Alrighty, we are uh, in our fifth week of our uh, Search for Meaning uh, series, and as we have seen in the book of Ecclesiastes, that the pursuit for meaning, the the search for it, he really kind of goes over every area of life, you know, work and justice and relationships and pleasure, and he just covers the whole thing. But in every age of history, and in every generation, the search for meaning always turns towards religion. And in the book, with every one of the pursuits, he says, this too is meaningless. This too is wearisome. This is chasing after the wind. So what about religion? Is it meaningless? Is it too also vanity? So if you're willing and able, let's stand and let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. This is God's Word. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart hasty and utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much work, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay it. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say to the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase, words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. This is the reading of God's holy and infallible word. He gives it to us because he loves us. Amen. You may be seated. Let me ask you a question. Are you the kind of person that heeds warning signs? I mean, do you read every warning label about what could possibly go wrong? Or do you kind of ignore it? How about these warning signs? No trespassing. We're tired of hiding the bodies. Warning, we can make it to the fence in 2.8 seconds. Can you? Danger, avoid serious injury. Don't tell me how to do my job. And the last one, I feel like my wife says all the time, I would agree with you, but then we'd both be wrong. Warning signs. You know, it's the 4th of July, 
And on the 4th, you're going to have beautiful, fun, powerful fireworks, right? And it seems like often you'll sometimes, after the 4th, you'll read about someone who got hurt using fireworks. And sometimes you kind of wonder, did they heed the warnings? Were they careful in their use of fireworks? The search for meaning is serious business. This passage begins with a warning. He says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Don't be sloppy. Don't be full of yourself. Come with a few words, not many. You see, approaching God is the foundation of religion. And how you approach God will actually impact how you approach all of life. Because everyone is searching for meaning. So your approach towards God or your lack of it will determine whether you have meaning or whether you are crushed under the vanity and the meaningless of all the toil under the sun. You'll be crushed or you will live. Guard your steps. We'll take your sermon outline. Let's look at this passage together. First, the futility of religion. He says, guard your steps when you come to the house of God. He says, approach God not with many words or much work or many dreams about your accomplishments. He says, the fool, the fool has many words. So let your words be few. Now, what does many words and much work mean? He calls it the sacrifice of fools. Well, it is the religion of justifying yourself. You see, the fool has many words, words of boasting, words of an inflated resume, words of blame shifting and making excuses. Self-justification is always full of many words before God and others. The passage here also talks about making these vows to God. These vows were public vows of, of dedication to God like prayer and fasting or committing yourself to some kind of action for God. It was a a good thing. Like in Psalm 132, Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty God of Jacob. But the warning here is for us to be sober in making vows. So much so, he says, it's better to not make them than to make them and be casual or sloppy. Now, why would people make public vows to God and then really have no intent on keeping them? Particularly because these vows were optional. The reason to impress others, to appear as better than you actually are. George Bernard Shaw writes this, the lives, which we ha- the lives which have no use, no meaning, no purpose will fade out. You will have to justify your existence or perish. In our global information age of limitless possibilities, 
We are told we have the freedom to be anything, but that has turned into the expectation to be everything. And so many of us feel a relentless pressure to justify our existence or perish. And so we try to establish value by making good grades, by looking successful, by having achievement, by being good. Many words, much work to impress, to justify. He says it's the sacrifice of fools and that they don't even know it's evil. They're unaware that they're doing it. Now, are you aware that you're doing it? It's the default mode of the human heart. Luke 18, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, another, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, he would not even lift his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast, saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee. He had many words, much boasting about the vows, the promises. He fasts twice a week. The tax collector uses few words. He had no boast, no lofty promises of future accomplishments. The Pharisee uses anything and many things to explain his justification. A.W. Tozer writes this. He says, religion has accepted this monstrous heresy that noise, size, activity, and bluster make a man dear to God. John Tyson is a pastor in New York City. Originally, he's from Australia, completely different culture. And when he first came to the United States, he was really kind of shocked in a humorous way of how different Americans talk about success than the Australians do. He said in Australia, when, when someone's doing really well in life, people will say about that person, well, they're doing quite well for themselves. Or if you're personally talking about your own success, you would say, well, I'm, I'm well taken care of. But he said in America, in the land of competition, that success is always talked about with violent images or, or, or aggressive nature. He said success here is described this way. Oh, he's killing it. She is crushing it. That guy, he is simply slaying the competition. Two men went up to the temple to pray. And one of them is crushing it with many words. It's not an American thing. It is the religion of the human heart to make ourselves big. And when we do, God is always made small. John Calvin writes this, For since we are all naturally prone to hypocrisy, any empty semblance of righteousness 
is quite enough to satisfy us instead of righteousness itself. As long as we keep our mind within the confines of human pollution, anything which in some small degree is less defiled delights us as if it was most pure. So long as we do not look beyond earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness and we address ourselves in the most flattering of terms. He says that we will use any empty semblance of righteousness under the sun to justify ourselves because we long to feel like we're killing it. Do you know that 31% of evangelicals are totally all in on conspiracy theories? They talk about it all the time. They're obsessed with it all the time. And pastors are pulling their hair out because they can't keep their congregation from being obsessed over it. Now, why would people get obsessed over conspiracy theories? Because it gives you a sense of pleasure that you know the real story, that you have the inside scoop, that you have insight that nobody else does. I just finished reading a book um, by Frederick Douglass. Frederick Douglass was an American slave. He wrote the book in 1845, very gifted writer, about the devastating evils of slavery. He told uh, his own story. This is what he writes, a very interesting thing he writes in the book at one point. He says, when Colonel Lloyd's slaves met with the slaves of Jacob Jimson, they seldom parted without a quarrel about their masters. Colonel Lloyd's slaves contending that he was the richest, Mr. Jepson's slaves that he was the smartest. Colonel Lloyd's slaves would boast about his ability to buy and sell Jacob Jensen's slaves. Mr. Jimson's slaves would boast about his ability to whip Colonel Lloyd. These quarrels almost always ended in a fight between the parties. And those that whipped were supposed to have gained the point at issue. They seemed to think that the greatness of their masters was transferable to themselves. It was considered as being bad enough to be a slave, but to be a poor man's slave was deemed a disgrace indeed. I mean, that is just so sad. I mean, slavery was evil. Both of these masters in the book are incredibly cruel and mean. Yet, like those slaves, the human heart is desperate to be justified, desperate to cling to any kind of righteousness, even if it is defiled, even if it is distorted, to redeem ourselves under the sun. You know... In our heart of hearts, we know that we're not enough. Quite honestly, if we're honest, we're not that really much impressed with ourselves. And our anger and our envy, our self-loathing, our anxiety, our overworking, our feeling small, being critical, boasting, self-pity, always comparing our lives with those who have more. It's the firewood that we are constantly, busily chopping down to build the blaze high in the dark night of our slavery to justify ourselves. There's a great little story 
about a little boy who accidentally killed his grandmother's duck. He accidentally shot the duck with a rock uh, with his slingshot. And, uh, and, and he was convinced that no one saw his foul deed. Okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. Have somebody explain it to you, okay? He thought nobody saw it. So he buried the duck and he thought all was well. But then later he finds out that his sister saw the whole thing. So she has complete leverage on him. So every time it was her turn to wash the dishes or take out the garbage or wash the car, she would simply come to her little brother and say, remember the duck. And then he would scamper and work really hard to be good and take care of all of her chores. That's religion. That's the religion of justifying yourself. It is always whispering to you, remember the duck. Remember, I own you. Remember, you're not enough. You better be a good little boy. This passage is meant to shake us awake to our exhausting efforts to justify that it's vanity. You know, for many of us, there is an outer voice, but certainly an inner voice that's always speaking to us. Remember the duck. Get to work. You know, the vanity of religion is like that arcade game, whack-a-mole. You ever see that, whack-a-mole? The rodents of self-righteousness and self-condemnation are always popping up in our lives. And we try in vain to whack them down, but we simply don't have what it takes. But we whack on. We're driven by insecurity and guilt and pride. It's chasing after the wind. So that's the futility of religion, then the fear of the Lord. He says, he says to them, he says, guard your steps. Don't be sloppy when you go to the house of God. Let your words be few. Do not be rash. Do not be hasty before God. Because God is in heaven and you're just a little speck on earth. And in verse 7, he says this. He says, but God is the one you must fear. Fear of the Lord, that approaching God is with humility, wonder, reverence, and awe. When he says guard your steps, the word steps is a reference to our feet. And it's much like when Moses in the Old Testament saw the burning bush. And what was he told to do? Take off your sandals because you are on holy ground. Our feet represent our creatureliness, our weakness, our frailty before a holy God. Annie Dillard writes this. Why do people in church seem like a cheerful, brainless tourist on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? Churches are like children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. 
They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may awake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. You see, fear and trembling before a holy God is still appropriate. In Isaiah 6, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, full of glory. You know, Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, they were sloppy, offering a strange fire, worshiping God how they saw fit, and God struck them down. You know, in the book of Job, Job kind of, he talks too much. He uses too many words. And at one point at the end of the book, he simply puts his hand over his mouth. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira bring a promise, bring a vow to God, but they lied about it. And God struck them down. Peter, when he had his eyes open to who Jesus really was, thought he was going to be struck dead, fell on his face and said, depart from me. I'm a sinful man. Michael Hart um, led us in prayer. He's new on our staff. He just joined our team as a pastor. And one of the first weeks he was here after Sunday morning worship, he came up to me and he said, hey, how was your worship of God today? And I thought, oh, great. We hired a pastor who actually has some depth. (laughs) But seriously, it was a really good question. You know, we start the service with a call to worship. It's a guard your steps kind of moment. And I have to admit, very often, my worship of God is very sloppy. I'm busy Many words, much work, running around, checking on people, asking how they're doing, making sure this is going well, making sure this is happening, answering people's questions, solving problems. And sometimes I never stop and worship. You know, when Michael was leading us in prayer, I just, I sat there and I thought, gosh, the ways I make God small when I think I'm really a big shot. Worship, the fear of the Lord, is the right hammer to smash the vanity of religion. John Calvin writes this. He says, it is evident that man never attains a true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after it to contemplate and look at himself. For such is our innate pride. We always seem to ourselves just, upright, and wise, and holy, until we are convinced by clear evidence of our injustice, vileness, folly, and impurity. Men are never duly touched or impressed with the conviction of their insignificance until they have contrasted themselves with the majesty of God. You see, as Calvin says, we cannot satisfy the quest for meaning unless we encounter the face of God and then come down from it to see the futility of our religious efforts. Worship invites us into full meaning. The call to worship every weekend is a call for you to lean into your smallness and lean into the greatness of God 
and see the futility of all your efforts to find meaning in life outside of him. So, let me ask you, how was your worship of God today? What did God think of your worship? Now, that question might make you feel really guilty. Like you really need to try harder. Well, maybe you do. Maybe you are sloppy. But you have to understand something. God knows. God is, God is smarter than you. You have to understand that God is smarter than you. And he knows that beholding his glory, his honor, his, his beauty, his majesty with reverence and awe will bring healing to you. The worship of God always brings glory to him and healing to us. And God knows that. Do you? Two men went up to the temple to pray. Third, the fullness of Jesus. In verses four to six, he focuses on vows to God. And then he says this, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. What's he talking about? Who's the messenger? He is saying that they're making fake and sloppy vows, promises to God to justify themselves. But when the time for accountability comes, they say, oh, it was a mistake. They make excuses. They defend themselves for their failure. They hide. Now, the messenger here, what is that? It's a reference to an angel, a minister, or a priest. But it's accountability for the promises made to God. The purpose of the messenger was to root out hypocrites, pretenders, and fakes. Those who use God and use people to hide and look better. It was a, a sort of judgment, so to speak. Steve Brown is a, uh, a, one of my seminary professors and uh, author and speaker. And one time he was speaking to a, a room full of pastors and and seminary students, and he was kind of going on with his lecture and stuff, and then he finally just stopped in the middle of it, and he just kind of took in the room. And he kind of had this light bulb realizing what he had in the room. And this is what he said. I know you have a reputation for godliness, and that everybody looks up to you as leaders in the faith. But he said, I know the truth. I've been around a long time, and frankly, you and I both know you aren't as good as your reputation suggests. You have secrets that would shock everybody who knew you if they knew the truth. And you are scared spitless. They're going to find out. What's he saying? He's saying, I know you killed the duck, <laughs> and I know where it's buried. And I know you're pretending. Our failure and our shame, broken vows, broken promises. You have cheated your employer on your hours. 
haven't you? You've cheated on your taxes. You're hiding your pornography use from your spouse or your parents. And the messenger comes, the accountability comes, and we hide, we run, we boast, we make excuses. Aren't you tired of chasing the wind? Aren't you tired hearing, remember the duck? And being a good little boy or girl, scrambling, pretending you're better than you are. John Tyson, the, the pastor I mentioned um, just a minute ago, he, uh, before he became a senior pastor, he was a youth pastor. And one time he was on the other side of town and he ran into this young lady uh, who had been a teenager in his youth group. And so they kind of, you know, exchanged pleasantries, kind of caught up a little bit where she was in life as, she was, as an adult. And then he said he kind of sat back a little bit in the conversation, was kind of waiting for the inevitable praise of her saying something like, hey, when I, you impacted my life, your ministry, your leadership was so powerful in my life. He said it never came. Instead, she said something that put the fear of God in him. This is what she said. I was hoping to bump into you sometime soon. I've been dealing with some pretty heavy stuff in my life. And I think some of the root of it came from my time under your leadership. I want you to know when I look back on my time under your leadership, I feel really used. I feel like you took my gifts that I had as a teenager and leveraged them to build something for yourself. And I came out pretty lost. I felt like a commodity. And I just want you to know that because you're still in ministry. And I don't want other people to have the same experience I had. Boom. Boom. She felt used. He was using her talents in his efforts to justify himself. She was his messenger calling him out for his fakeness and his abuse of leadership. Now, I want you to see how powerful this is, this story. Where did I get that story? It's from his book. He published this. Do you know what that means? It means that he is free. He's not owned by being having to justify himself. He is free from the vanity of religion. Why? Because he is experiencing the fullness of Jesus. Look what it says in Romans 10. For Christ is the end of the struggle for righteousness to everyone who believes. In Christ... There is now no condemnation. Jesus has kept every vow and fulfilled all righteousness. So our struggle for reputation, for appearance, for worth is over. The struggle to quiet the voice of self-loathing is over. When we remember the gospel, 
when we're experiencing the fullness of Jesus and calling that into our lives, then the game of whack-a-mole is over. The constant beating down of the rodents of self-righteousness and self-condemnation. We can quiet the voice of remember the duck, remember your shame. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So how do you approach God? How do you stand under the judgment? How do you, how do you answer when the messenger comes and the messenger does come? Well, we actually read it at the beginning of the service. How are you right with God? How are you justified? Only by true faith in Jesus Christ, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all of God's commandments and having never kept any of them, and even though I'm still inclined towards all evil, nevertheless, without deserving it at all, Out of sheer grace, this is my favorite part. I just think it's beautiful. God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and the holiness of Christ. As if I never sinned, nor been a sinner. As if Adam Jones had been perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. And all I have to do is speak a few words and receive the gift of God with a believing heart. A friend of mine is a pastor and this college girl in his church made an appointment to see him. So he had no idea what it was about. So she comes in to his office and she sits down. And this is the first words out of her mouth. I'm better than you. I'm a better Christian than you. I'm confident that I'm more obedient than you. I serve more and I'm very disciplined. She said, but but you have more joy than I do. And, And you seem to really believe that God is your father and that he's crazy about you. She said, I'm tired. I want what you have. Would you please tell me about this grace that you seem to know so much about? The fullness of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we have certainly felt deeply the exhausting efforts to justify ourselves. Our boasting, the shame that we want to cover, the insecurity, the fear, the feeling small, the criticalness and the judgment. But Father, you speak words of life, words that end the vanity of religion and speak the fullness of Jesus. 
Would you press that truth by your Holy Spirit deep within us that we might walk free? In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Seven Rivers, please visit our website at sevenrivers.org.